Welcome everybody to Crystal and Kyle today. There is no friend today, or as I was joking with the crew, Crystal, Kyle, and Ghost is our show today. Should we like pause to leave room for a non-existent entity to talk in between our comments? The spirit. Yes, we should do that, shouldn't we? Probably not. That's a terrible idea. Yeah, that's a terrible (laughs) idea. All right, so... um, we uh, we got something going on later in the week. We're we're traveling somewhere, so we're it's just Crystal and I today. We weren't able to squeeze in a guest, but that's okay because you know, truth be told, I like talking to you. Well, thank you. I certainly hope so. I enjoy you it. Have, you have a lot of that ahead of you in your future. That, if things work out, that is very true. That is very true. <laughs> if things work out, that sounds like a threat. Anyway, <laughs> all right. So a uh, bunch of stuff uh, we're going to talk about today. There's uh, been. A rehashing of the COVID wars on the left that I want to talk to you about. Um, Brianna Joy Gray had on Rico Suave and Walker Bragman. Uh, Rico Suave is, of course, the libertarian contributor to uh, an outlet that we don't mention over here on this show. (laughs) It's okay. I'm I'm over it at this point. The Hill. Okay. So uh, he's the rising host. He's taking the libertarian position, and then uh, Walker Bragman is taking what I would classify as the leftist authoritarian position that might be controversial right up front but we'll get to that in a little bit anyway so we have that uh i got a follow-up on hannity shitting all over student loan debt relief which is incredibly obnoxious because he even threw his own workers under the bus right and now yeah. it's just like straight up lying about it like i didn't say that I'm right be, i'm yeah. being taken out of context it's so unfair biden calling um republican semi-fascist we're going to get into a discussion about whether or not that's well there's a one the question is, is it accurate? Then there's another question of, is it good strategy? He should, he, should he right. do it? Yeah. Should he do it? So so those are separate things. And then I got, uh, you know, the dancing Finnish prime minister and some Ben Shapiro stuff. So we got a lot of stuff to look forward to here. Um, so let's start off with uh, Brianna Joy Gray. On Brianna's show, Bad Faith, she had on uh, Rico Suave and uh, also known as, what's his actual name? Robbie. Robbie Suave. Is it Suave or Suave? Suave. Is it? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Robbie Suave. I think it's yeah. Robbie Suave. No, it's... I'm pretty sure it's Robin okay. Suave. Well, his last name sounds like a shampoo, if you ask me. Suave, isn't that a shampoo? Suave is a shampoo. It is a shampoo. Suave is not a shampoo. Well, Suave would be an even better shampoo if they named if they named one that, because it sounds even better. Like a yesified <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> shampoo. You could double the price on that bitch and people be like, well, I get it. I mean, it, it is, it's Suave. Yeah. Like, it's worth it. So so Walker Bragman <laughs> um, and, and Robbie Suave went back and forth on this issue of COVID regulations, and nominally you have somebody here who represents a right-wing libertarian position and somebody who represents a left-wing position, but the reason why I find this interesting is because you have, there was a a, a vehement inter-left debate on the issue of COVID and how to approach it and what regulations are okay versus what are overreaching, et cetera. So let's listen to their back and forth here a little bit, and then we'll come back and give our take on it. The CDC's recommendations for masks for children were stricter than the World Health Organization's and the European Union. It's that we, we masked, we masked more aggressively, we recommended masks more aggressively than European health authorities did. That's, yeah, I don't think that's a bad thing, but I, oh. I, I think that it's sort of besides the point that I'm making, which is that if we have these things in place, we can have less disruption. Like, they're letting, letting this virus go and saying, we can't do anything. This is a novel virus. It is mutating rapidly. The long-term effects are, are coming into focus. Um, it is quite it is quite dangerous. Uh, and and by the way, for for you know child deaths, we always say, oh well, they're they're not really at risk because only like fourteen hundred kids have, have died. But for some context for that, in 2019, 2018, only nineteen thousand kids died in the entire U.S. So it, we're 
mm-hmm. just because like kids don't die very frequently as a demographic. Mm-hmm. So something that kills like ten, 10% of kids or 10% of child makes up 10% of child deaths in America, that's something you still take seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you know, we, we should have basic protections for people in their workplaces. We, we should make remote work. We should normalize remote, remote work and make remote options available for school. Immunocompromised people are being asked to do this forever, to live, to live with this choice of participation and possible death or yeah. starvation. We are asking them by doing nothing to live this reality forever. And I don't think that's fair. Okay. So you want to start here because there's stuff we can respond directly to from that or there's just the general concepts of what yeah. the proper approaches that we can discuss. Well, there's, there's a that. lot. I mean, first, I want to say I think Brianna does a great job hosting these conversations. And you and I, full disclosure, watched the entire thing to see what cases Robbie was making, what cases Walker was making. And, you know, I think at times agreed with both of them because um, they're on either ends of the spectrum. I think that Walker makes a decent point here when he says, listen, yes, compared to the number of adults who died with COVID, children died much, much less often, but you're still talking about a significant proportion of childhood deaths, so that's something we can take seriously. Okay, I think that's a fair point that he makes there. But then the question becomes, okay, well, what's your proposal for what you would do? What are your interventions? And what came out in the conversation is he continues to be in favor of some very heavy-handed interventions and also some interventions that, frankly, just haven't proven to be that successful. So um, one possible thing is, you know, masking kids in schools, which we all did for uh, quite a while. And there just isn't much evidence that that was that effective. Now, that doesn't mean that masks don't work in general. Of course, if you have like a higher-end mat, the N95 or the KN95, those are proven to be quite effective on adults well-fitted, all of those things. But the practical realities of kids with their small faces in a classroom meant that it was much more difficult to have any efficacy from masking in the classrooms. That's one thing. The other piece of this that bothered me about the conversation, um, which again, I think Brianna did a very good job navigating, but because you have two people on opposite ends of the spectrum, there was very little willingness to engage with the fact that you have two competing values here. You have the value of safety and health and everybody sort of chipping in and doing their part and being required to do their part to keep their fellow citizens safe. That's one value in society, and I think that's a reasonable value. The other value in society is sort of liberty and freedom and being able to make choices for yourself and for your family and for your kids in a free society. Those two things are in tension here. They're in conflict. Both are, you know, are valid and they're items that we, they're competing values that we balance all the time in society. So what bothered me at times, especially about the way that Walker presented this, is he wouldn't give any credence to the idea that there is any competing value here whatsoever or that there were detrimental effects from some of the COVID precautions that we did take. Specifically with regards to kids, I mean, now we have really a mountain of evidence that remote learning for many kids, and especially poor kids, was a disaster. Um, They had massive learning loss. They got behind academically. These are especially kids who were like starting kindergarten and trying to learn the basics of reading and writing and math. 
This could set them behind literally for their entire lives. And those costs fell disproportionately on poor kids in black and brown neighborhoods whose, you know, not only had uh, parents who had to, a lot of times were essential workers, had to go to work, didn't have the situation that white collar workers did to be there sort of like half watching the kids while they're doing their schoolwork. Um, But also those schools were more likely to stay on remote learning longer than wealthier schools. So there was a huge cost here. And that wasn't really reflected in Walker's consideration of what interventions he would be in support of. So the part of your commentary that I co-sign is, and I think this is the most important part of the conversation, is that there are two competing values and both of the concerns at, at the core of those things are totally legitimate. Yeah. So you have, like you said, the, sort of the community concern and how do we protect everybody? How do we care for the public good and for safety? That's totally legitimate. You can make a left-wing case for all those things. But then you also have the consideration of people making their own choices and freedom and liberty, which does conflict with it in this instance. Now, I would contend to you when we're talking about like, what is the left position on this? Yeah. You can sincerely make a left-wing case from either one of those positions or anything in between. You know what I'm saying? Which well, is why the COVID politics yes. in other countries flipped and some of the lefties were the ones who were not in favor of their restrictions and, and the authoritarians on the right were in favor of their even, restrictions. Even putting like ideology aside, I think you can make like a genuine pro-kid argument from either of these positions too. Of because, course. yeah, on the one hand, just as Walker said, like we got to make sure we're protecting these kids and you know we got to make sure that in those school systems we're doing everything we can and give them remote options and um, enforce a vaccine mandate at the school level so that everybody is protected because this is still significant. But on the other side, we've now seen a lot of evidence that these policies we put in place were very detrimental. They had a significant downside. And so that, you know, so you can also make that argument from the pro kid perspective. What irritates me oftentimes about these discussions is there's a lot of just like emotional blackmail of like, oh, well, you just don't care about the kids and like you just want to let kids die and, that, and you're not willing to do anything here. And that really frustrates me. And that I think that stuff is stupid. So we agree on that. But I have yeah. a lot more to say. Hold on. Let me okay. get everything out before you respond to it. So on the competing values point, that's I, I agree with that completely. And I think any honest uh, per- contributor to the conversation would acknowledge that. But I've seen on both sides of this a total non-acknowledgement of that. Right. And this idea that if you disagree with my approach on COVID, then you're, you know, you're crazy or whatever. Um, And now in terms of, I think the conversation gets a lot more complex and nuanced when you get to, because you made a a point of fact there, which I I take issue with, which is this notion, yes, there are trade-offs when talking about like masking the kids in school. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, oh, that just doesn't have that much efficacy, I don't agree with that because if masks are what whatever it is, KN95 and 95s are 93% or 95% effective and it stops the spread 80 some odd percent, then you can't, it logically follows from that, that it would be, you know, there would be an efficacy there if you do mask the kids during the height of a surge. So I just don't agree that like, okay, if, if the spread wasn't that different, it's because the kids weren't actually following the rules yeah. is my point. Well, you know what I'm saying? Well, I think that I think that is the problem. Is yes, right, okay. theoretically, and we agree. Then we theoretically, agree. if you have kids with properly fitted masks that they're literally wearing all day in the classroom, which again I think has and I think has been shown there is a trade off. There is a trade off. There right. is a trade off there. But let's say ignore the trade off. If they're wearing the masks and they're wearing them properly and they keep them on all day, then uh, logically, theoretically, that would improve. Like that would help to stop the spread. But 
in the in the real world they're when this has been it, studied, they're, it off. they're kids. And I mean, so the they similar. don't fit them properly. They're too right. big. Mm-hmm. They're not wearing the right kind. They have to take them off at lunch and, you know, to get a drink of water and yeah. all of those things. The messiness of actual reality has made it so that intervention did not turn out to be all that effective. So we actually agree. I'm glad that we had that back and forth because yeah. now we totally agree. All right. So, but now let's go point for point with the, the specific... COVID regulations. So let's start with just the general idea of mask mandates. Obviously, they're unenforceable, but we'll do pre-vaccine and post-vaccine. I I do want to say one other thing, though, big picture before we get into the specifics, which is that, and I think this is where I also have um, an issue with the way that Walker approaches this, which is we do live in a democracy. And it is very clear at this point, like people have come to accept a certain level of risk in their lives. It's a fairly small number at this point that would argue for things like, as he does, banning indoor dining, you know, at this point. Yeah, so let's Requiring masking in all of these settings. And I do think that that overall, like, democratic will and how where the society has landed on these questions, I think that should be factored in as well because the public has made a judgment about where they want to draw the line on risk versus safety. All right, so let's go masking. Pre-pandemic, vac- uh, uh, mask mandate, support or oppose? Pre, pre-vaccine. Pre-vaccine. Pre-vaccine, yeah. Mask mandate. Mask mandate. Support. I support too. Okay. But now in terms of how you enforce it, I actually think what we did is m- more ideal, which is you don't, you're not literally enforcing it at the barrel of a gun. Yeah. More of like a, a dictate from above. Social that's sort of loosely socially enforced, right? Yeah. And they got into this um, because the pushback from that, which they got into, uh, which I think is tough to respond to, is because Walker basically wa- still wants a mask mandate. And Brianna and Robbie were both pushing them on. Well, if the mask for you, the N95 or the KN95, is like 85, 90% effective, then no one's stopping you from like wear the mask. It's no problem. Go ahead, do it. And so if you're able to do that and make that choice, like why do you want to enforce on all these other people the mandate that they have to wear masks? Um, And I think he had trouble responding to that in the moment. I think, you know, when you have a massive surge and you don't have vaccines, I think the marginal difference between two-way masking and one-way masking, I think it matters a lot more. And I do also think that there's like a social conformity piece of this, where if in general everyone is wearing masks, people are more likely to wear masks, where if in general people aren't wearing masks, they're less likely to sort of conform and be part of that system. So I think that is a part of it as well. Well, but see, the thing is, the trade-off in the restriction of freedom or the regulation of doing a mask mandate pre-vaccine yeah. is more than made up for in what you're gaining because then you get to say, no lockdown. If you all wear masks and everything's open, people would pick that 10 out of 10 times over, we're going to force your ass to stay at home. Yeah, you know although that was, yes. I mean, that's, our view, but I don't think that that is like Walker's view. Well, that's not his view, but forget yeah. Walker. And now okay. I'm talking to you. Like, I want to know okay. your feelings but on I'm all this I'm just stuff. saying like, yes. So that is the way I view it is I'm in favor of those kinds of restrictions, but don't do the lockdowns, keep the schools open, pre-vaccine. All right, well, let, yes. you're getting ahead of me. Let me keep going point for point here. So masking, uh, post-vaccine, mask mandate, uh, support or oppose, given oppose. the facts we know about this vaccine? Oppose. Oppose. Yeah. I mean, if you... I think the moral landscape changes significantly once you have easy availability for a vaccine. 
um, and people who want to protect themselves are able to make that choice for themselves to protect themselves. And then it's sort of like, why am I going to impose this bur- these burdens on additional burdens on society when some people aren't willing to take those steps for themselves? So I think that changes the moral landscape. And it also just changes the risk profile, too, because now, yes, you still are given that these vaccines, you know, you can still get COVID um, in spite of being vaccinated, but you're much less likely to face severe illness and death. So there's a much greater risk to sort of your like life and health if you do contract COVID because the people around you aren't masking. So we agree because the vaccine is free and easily available and it's been out for a very, very long time. Yeah. And so at this point, if you're not vaxxed, you have definitely chosen not to get vaxxed. So to try to put the burden on somebody else to say, well, you have to mask because I didn't protect myself, sort of fuck you. Like, why should I care about your well-being if you're not even going to care about your own well-being? Yes. You know what I'm saying? So so we agree so far completely. Yeah. Um, so now there's two separate questions on the vaccine. Question number one is, is the vaccine good? Of course. Uh, right. Now yeah. you say, of course, <laughs> but there are people, even left-wing people, yeah. who are like, no, it's all part of a big pharma conspiracy, and they're trying to force people to have the vaccine, and it's all for profit, when the reality is, in my opinion, they flipped the conspiracy, because the yes. real conspiracy is these va- these pharma companies are not lifting the patent protections, which means that developing countries weren't getting access to the vaccine. Right. No. So it's only for the wealthy nations. So the real conspiracy exactly. here is lift the fucking patent protections. The real conspiracy is not enough people getting access Correct. to exactly. the vaccines, as evidenced by Moderna suing Pfizer over their patent right now over the mRNA right. technology that so, actually the U.S. taxpayer developed. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, understand that... Everybody agrees and everybody knows now this doesn't stop you from getting COVID. People still make that point as if it's like a debate end or something like doesn't even stop you from getting COVID or spreading COVID. And it's like, but we still see the numbers that severe illness, hospitalization and death plummet for people who've taken the vaccine. Yeah. So that's not a debate ending point. In fact, if anything, you're making, you know, my case for me that the vaccine is good because and again, every chart has shown this. I've showed it a number of times on my show. I just covered Alex Jones talking about this the other week and showed the chart for people who are unvaccinated. Spike in deaths and hospitalizations for people who had one shot. It's sort of in the middle. And then for people uh, who are vaccinated, there's only the tiniest bump in hospitalization and death. So so that's all right. Now we got that out of the way. Vax mandates. Um, I'm in the camp, uh, the same camp you are basically kind of like a middle ground, because well, this to me is where the the values really come very directly. Oh, they are totally in conflict. Yeah. And so, you know, I supported the direction of the Biden administration when they're saying, okay, let's do a vaccine or test mandate. Like, if you really don't want to get the vaccine and that's where you're landing on this thing, like, we think that it would benefit you. But if you're willing to subject yourself to a testing regimen, okay, fine. You're not going to lose your job over it. You're going to be able to, like, go to school, live your life, all those sorts of things. Personally, I think that's kind of the right middle ground approach to strike. I do. Okay, so we mostly agree. I do think there might be a little area where we disagree. But so first, our agreement. Yes, the position that I thought kind of balanced those two values, which I care deeply about both of those things, yeah. balance them properly is the idea of, look, you can either get vaccinated or, or get tested. Because the testing, honestly, to say that's some sort of onerous burden, I think is absurd. I've taken a million of those COVID tests, the rapid COVID tests. I mean, you're done in like two it's seconds. It's really not a big it's deal. It's the simplest yeah. thing in the world. They're, they don't have to go deep into your fucking brain anymore when they do them. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. vaccinate or test is like this perfect middle ground regulation where you say, look, we care enough about the community that we're going to have some regulation here, but also we care enough about your freedom. Or if you want to opt out and just take the test, that's fine. Yeah. So I, I like that. Uh, our tiny area where we might disagree, and we'll see right now, is I don't have a problem at all with schools saying 
in order to go to this public school, you need to get the COVID vaccine because they already do it with polio. They already do it with measles. They already do it with rubella. They do it with a list of like 10 vaccines. So to say that this one is so special because a bunch of idiots fucking politicized it, I don't agree with that. And I think that's conceding to an irrational mob. Um, so we do disagree here because I think, like, I understand your principle in theory, and I think in theory it makes sense. But in reality, um, just because of who hasn't gotten vaccinated and who hasn't gotten their kids vaccinated, like in D.C., you face this situation where it was possible that 40 percent or so of the African-American population, kids of D.C., were going to be blocked from school. Give it out at the door vaccinated. on the first day, Crystal. It's not it's, that hard. It's Give not, it out at the door on the first day. It's not that simple. And so it totally is. if that's the choice of, like, blocking blocking, let's say it's even, let's say they get it down to 10% of black kids in the city of DC from going to school. I just, I don't think that's worth you it. Can especially, get- especially when you consider that, yeah, the rates of, you know, COVID severe illness and death for kids is very, very low. So yeah, I don't think that that trade-off is worth making. So then why aren't you consistent? Why don't you oppose all the other vaccine mandates too then? The one, the polio, rubella, measles, mumps. Why don't, why aren't you consistent on that? Why am I, why, um, because on those, there really isn't an, it. you don't have that same level of disparity. I mean, I'm just dealing with the reality of the situation as it exists. If you had this huge disparity where, you know, this was going to keep 40% of the black population of kids in a city from going to school, then yeah, you'd have to deal with that in a more thoughtful way um, than just sort of a blanket mandate. But, but why oppose the idea I just laid out, which is give it to them on the first day on the way in the door? Well, I mean, you could definitely try to do that, but the reality is you're probably still going to have people that resist. And so you might end up with, okay, so let's say it's 10%. Let's say it's 5%. I still think that's too many kids being blocked from access to education. And for what? I mean, what ultimately is the risk that you're worried about? You're worried about more people getting it when it's at this point, it's really relatively mild and not that big of a risk, not that big of a threat. I don't understand why that trade-off makes sense. It's because it's conceding to an irrational mob. So anybody can gin up any issue based on no evidence whatsoever. And all of a sudden, all of society has to kowtow to their nonsense. No, but this isn't you didn't complain just, about polio. You didn't complain about mumps. You didn't complain about you, rebellion. You, you didn't care about any of these. Mind, now, all of a sudden, because you watch some shitty thing on Reddit, all of a sudden you think, oh, well, this is a, infringing on my freedom. So no, I'm not even going to let my kid get it. I don't Fuck really, like, I don't care about the political statement that it makes. I care about what is the impact on those kids right now for this school year. And also, by the way, saying that vaccine hesitancy is just about an irrational right-wing mob really ignores the fact and that- And some on the left, that the, uh, Yeah, but the, really ignores the fact that you also have, you know, a public health care system that is totally broken and lacking in single-payer health care. Part of why we have long had vaccine hesitancy and all sorts of um, conspiratorial thinking when it comes to the, pub- to the health system is because we have profit in the center of our health care system. But we have, you a, have vaccine. a massive amount of you have a massive amount of the population that does not have a general uh, practitioner, primary care doctor. So they're not connected to the medical system to form that kind of a trust. And you have a legacy of discrimination in the African-American community when it comes to the healthcare system that is engendered like understandable mistrust. So to just say this is, you know, about conceding to the outrage mob, I don't think that's fair. And then again, like I said, I really don't care if it sends what political message it sends. What I care about is what is those kids experience going to be like this year right now for their education. Okay, we have a free vaccine. So the whole thing about like, oh, but the healthcare system is unfair. That's all true. And I'm in favor of single payer healthcare. But we have a free vaccine that you can get at almost any fucking CVS or Walgreens in the country. Yeah, that's true. But we're talking at some about point we stop making what excuses. The, but we're talking about what are the roots of vaccine hesitancy? right? Part of it is the political nature of this vaccine and the way that that's been stoked intentionally in a very bad faith way. Right but now, part I'd say of it, it's misinformation. But right pa- now, it is misinformation. That is definitely part of it. It's a big part of it. But another, why are people vulnerable to that misinformation? Because you have a legacy of um, 
intentional discrimination, especially in the African-American community, from the medical establishment. You have a legacy of profit at the center of uh, our healthcare system instead of health. And you have a legacy of so many Americans, millions and millions of Americans, having no trusted connection to the healthcare system so that they have a doctor who can go to and explain, okay, here's why we trust these. Here's why it's good. Here's why I think this makes sense for you and for your kids and for your family. So you can't just like wave your hand away and suddenly like the fact that we don't have single payer and we don't have Medicare for all like doesn't matter in this instance. Of course it matters. Of course that's the backdrop for part of why you have this issue. Okay, I don't want to get into a longer debate about this, but I am proactively saying treat this vaccine like all the other vaccines that we require for school and make it as easy as humanly possible so they can get it on their way in the door. So that's that's my position. All that other stuff you said might be valid. But that is my position. And I don't think that's an irrational position. I don't think it's irrational. No, I'm just saying not at all. My, my position is dealing with the reality as it exists. I'm saying of change which, the reality. Of which kids change the go, reality. Okay, but that's going to take time. It's Agreed. Not you need to snap your fingers. So I'm not saying snap your year, fingers. These I'm saying kids let's are be starting proactive. school right now. Okay, so, so what are you going to do? Are you going to bar them from school or are you going to let them Listen, go to school? I would same, let them go to school. In the same way you and I were haranguing the Biden administration, say, why are you not using the Defense Production Act to make these monoclonal antibodies? Let's be proactive here. Let's do something about that. It's the same spirit that I'm bringing to this debate about school vaccines. But look, we, we disagree on that one little part of it. We generally agree on the idea of vaccinate or test was the correct policy. I would also add to that that after a while, like at the point we are now, I'd be fine if that all goes away anyway because we're past the surge of COVID. If we get another surge, then I understand the vaccinator well, test policy coming right. back. I mean, that's, that's the other piece of like the particular variants we have now are quite mild. You know, I mean, there's still, if you are unvaccinated, there is still a risk, but it is not as high a risk, even, you know, with the, the early variants. It's just, even if you're unvaccinated, there's a lower risk because they are the, mild, more mild. They're more infectious, but they're milder. And that's the more than about 400 people who die every day. They're overwhelmingly unvaccinated people. Yes. So in other words, get your fucking vaccine. Don't be silly. Anyway. All right. So what do we have left? Single payer. We obviously agree on these. This is something that would have prevented about 330,000 deaths, according to Public Citizen in a yeah. report that came out. That's an easy one. Um, Paid medical leave, again, easy one. Um, the last two, which one of them I think is easy for us, the other one, we'll see. But lockdowns in general. I, I think looking back on how everything was treated from the beginning, I agree we probably never should have done a lockdown in the first place. There would have been, we never did at the national level or the federal level. I mean, we did, it, some states may have taken those sorts of actions, but uh, honestly, a lot of it was bottom up, like the businesses themselves being like, I can't get enough people to come into work. And people naturally right. not wanting to go out shopping because right. they see all this stuff on TV, like, holy shit, this is crazy. But as a matter of principle, I do think it would have been better to keep everything open and just do the basic health regulations, like pre-vaccine, you do the mask mandates. Post-vaccine, you do the vaccinator test policy, so we drive up those vaccination numbers. So anyway, I think the lockdown one to me is actually relatively easy looking back on it. Yeah. Japan, for example, was able to, they didn't get hit with a giant surge for a very long time, even when they kept everything open, because they had universal masking at the time. And I prefer that to any sort of semblance, whether it's federal or state level or whatever. I prefer what they did to any kind of lockdowns, whether they be semi-lockdowns or bottom-up lockdowns or whatever. Do you think that if we hadn't, because I mean, we never had, let's be clear, like a full lockdown, like certain places, to, like China. No, did, not even like close. Australia or not New even Zealand, close, we no. never had anything approaching that. But we did have like, you know, a lot of businesses closed and we had a lot of restrictions. And some states like California were very restricted. Indoor dining mm -hmm. and those sorts of yeah. things um, banned and, and shuttered for quite a while. Do you think if we hadn't had those um, sort of state or local imposed lockdowns, do you think we would have gotten the economic support that we got from the government? Um, I mean, I, 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 
I think we would have gotten some of it, definitely not all of it. And the reason I say I think we would have gotten some of it is because there was a natural downturn in the economy anyway because people were just free of their own volition, sort of scared to go out and, yeah. and act like normal. Yeah. So there would have been a downturn. It would have hurt small businesses. They would have done some version of small business support. Um, they wouldn't have been to the extent. But also, you got to understand, like, half of the COVID um, packages to try to rescue the economy, in my opinion, were just a giant grift, sort of like what you saw with the Wall Street bailouts in 2008. Yeah. I mean, the airline industry getting billions and billions of dollars, uh, uh, saying, hey, you can only get this if you don't fire people in your industry, and then they turn around and took the money and fired them anyway. So that's the sort of stuff that I look at and say, all, almost all the big business help was like a scam in my eyes. The small business help, not so much. I support that small business help. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's, I, I agree with you more or less on the lockdowns. That's just my only question is if we had had a blanket national policy of like no lockdowns, if that would have given, given politicians an excuse to basically say like, you're on your own because there still would have been a huge economic hit. Of course, no doubt about um, it. And so that's that's my only concern is that would that have given them an excuse to not do anything to help workers who were, you know, completely screwed and continue to be completely screwed. And then the final one here is remote work. Oh, I mean, I'm full support. Full I, support. I support remote work yeah. too. But more as a matter of principle, really not even having anything to do with COVID. Agreed, agreed. Yeah. And uh, the thing with remote work, I mean, it really is like the boss class very upset about it, not because productivity fell off at all. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, there's no sign that workers were any less productive when they were working from mm -hmm. home. Um, and, you know, if you're the type of person who wants to come into the office, I think you should have that option as well. Right. But yeah. they really like having their eyeballs on where it's like a control mechanism. There's also a powerful like real estate <laughs> developer incentive to get people's butts back in seats, because if you don't have these commercial real estate buildings filled, then that's bad for them. Um, so there are a lot of sort of like business and corporate incentives to force workers back to work. But not just in this instance, but as you're saying, this is sort of disconnected from COVID. One of the things that the pandemic seemed to have done is did create a real shift for the way that a lot of uh, white collar and other workers were thinking about and relating to their job where it was like, you know, I, I really object to the idea of like your job is who you are. And by having remote work available for people, it kind of, you know, created this shift and this disconnect where they were able to reconnect with other parts of themselves and other values in their life that were important to them. And so I value that as well. I agree. Um, so anyway, in summation, the, the left wing position on on uh, COVID regulations. I honestly think you can make an argument that any position on the spectrum is a left-wing approach because left-wingers value freedom and liberty. They also value community and public health and safety. And so, you know, I, I think that it's fair to call almost any position on that um, the left position. And me personally, I, I was in favor of sort of like a moderate approach that tries to balance as much as you can those two competing values. And it seems like you more or less agree with that general. Yeah. I, the thing that frustrated me, I always was sort of like a COVID centrist, I guess, in a yeah, way. Yeah, I would say the same. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I guess I was in the like vaxxed and relaxed kind of yeah. camp. Yeah. Um, it really frustrated me when people would pretend like this was a black and white issue. Oh, and in they, either people direction. do it all the time on both sides. Yeah, they do it all the time. That's what really irritates me because it is complicated. Like super it's complicated, hard to balance. Which is why there's so values. much fighting. Different people are going to have different interpretations of where that line should be drawn. You know, and again, to go back to my point about we do live in a democracy. I think that's really important. And you do have society at this point, like having drawn a line more in favor of all right, let's go out and live our lives and let's do our thing. And I think that that information is also important to keep yeah. in mind. Chris. Had Judges supported a vaccine mandate. 
we asked him that, remember? Yeah. He supported a flat vaccine mandate. Yeah. And then I think uh, Richard Wolf opposed it. So, like, you know, these yeah, are these two left-wing, like, icons. Lefties. Yeah. I mean, and, the, the only thing that I can't really support is the people who are just outright, like, anti-vax. You know? Like, that's just not based on the science. I agree. It's one thing to say, listen, make your own choice, and I'm against the mandates. But to dispute the very clear data that says severe illness and death is It's reduced. totally dishonest. But I will add to that, and some people might disagree with this, I actually find the, the hard vax mandate people— to be not as bad, but I still really disagree with that position. And this is coming from a guy who supports a vaxxer test policy. Right. The heart, like, you must get the shot in your arm, and that's the end of the conversation. Just don't pretend like that doesn't conflict with the idea of my body, my choice when it comes to abortion. There's also— Because that does. That, that's the polar opposite of that view. There's also some anti-science in there as well because they want to ignore all of the um, negative effects of the things that they're imposing and not talk about, you know, what it did to kids when schools were locked down and those sorts of things. So there is a sort of yeah, depression and anxiety spiking with oh, real hardcore huge lockdowns. Yeah. Issue for adolescents totally. in particular. Yeah. All right. So uh, we've covered that thoroughly. All right. So now we're doing a little bit of a follow up here on the Hannity segment we did where he was talking about the student loan debt relief and he comes out against it, of course, and he even throws his own workers under the bus. Mm -hmm. So Sean somehow through the grapevine sees that there's backlash to this and everybody's kind of making fun of him. And then he goes out. I think he, the person he's talking to here is one of the producers on his show. So this so, is one of the people he was talking about. Yes. So he brought out the person to be like, I totally agree with you, bro. That's so let's watch, guys. Funny. I don't know if you noticed the mob, the media mistook some words that I said about this. I was talking about myself and how when I got out of, you know, when I ran out of money and I, I, I got out of college because I didn't have any money to continue, that I still had to pay off my debt at a time where I was living paycheck to paycheck. And I ended up writing a check, $58.05 every month to Jamaica Savings Bank. And I paid off my loan and it wasn't easy to do. Uh, this basically, if you have a $125,000 income level limit, there's nobody that gets out of school that is, and unless you went to law school or you have some very specific skill is going to make that kind of money. And so everybody starts out, but they also capped it at 5% of what your income is, which is pretty low for somebody starting out. Although I would advise people to get rid of their debt as quickly as they can. That's just my own humble advice. Don't take my, I'm not a financial advisor. Do what your own financial advisors tell you to do. So what was the problem? Uh, the fact that you could commiserate? Oh, the fact was Hannity wants his own, doesn't even want his own employees to get free, free college tuition or, or. No, you don't. You want us to believe in the American way, which is capitalism and freedom. And quite frankly, I don't even know what a college education is worth these days, considering what they're teaching our kids. So as far well, as I'm that, concerned, a trade might be a might, much better path at this point. Well, it's capped at 5%. What I'm saying is, is that every other person that came before them that took out student loan debt, in other words, freely entered into an agreement to pay it back, should not expect others to pay off their debt. Exactly and right. That's all there is to it. And I, I'm speaking from my own experience at a time in my life when I had no money and was living paycheck to paycheck, didn't have a safety net of any kind. There was no government program ready to, to help me out if I wasn't able to pay back my student loan debt, and I paid it back. And in the end, I actually think it builds character. In the end, I think if you make a deal, you make an agreement, it's like, oh, pay off my car, pay off my mortgage. You know, where does this stop? Where does it end? 
There's so much good stuff there. Oh, yeah. You want to take the first <laughs> crack at it? Well, I just wanted to say uh, most directly because he said, oh, the media took me out of context and they tried to, like, you know, paint his comments as something different than what he said. I pulled up his actual comments because we covered him. And he directly said, we have a lot of young people that work on my TV show. They're not making $125,000. They're now eligible to get, in some cases, up to $20,000. In other cases, $10,000. This is new Green Deal radical socialism. So you may object now, but you literally were making the argument that you don't think your own staff deserves to benefit from this policy. That is, in fact, what you said. So I just looked this up now. You want to guess how much Hannity makes per year? Eight million. Twenty-five million. <laughs> so he makes twenty-five million and his producers aren't even making $125,000? Well, he wants them to believe in capitalism and freedom or whatever that lady said. <laughs> it's it's astonishing. So let's go through this. First of all, he's almost making our point for us as he's trying to argue against it because he said, look, man, I had to pay off my debts. I had to pay $58.05 per month. Yeah, I know. Bro, I what? Do you have any idea? <laughs> Virtually every single person with student loan debt would give their left nut in order to, or their ovaries, in order to, <laughs> in order to, uh, you know. Have that low of a yeah. payment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You well, kidding me? That's the thing. And that's what goes unrecognized here is when Sean Hannity was going to college, it was, in fact, massively subsidized. There was a much greater public support for public university. I don't know whether I don't know what institution he went to. I don't know if it was public or private. But this whole trend of uh higher education escalating dramatically in cost and then becoming basically like these mini businesses that are going out in the marketplace and trying to attract um, the wealthiest students by all of these amenities and having all this bloat. This starts with Ronald Reagan and an attack on the public university system in California, which was both and is still highly respected, but was also extraordinarily inexpensive for the population. He used backlash against student protests at UC Berkeley in order to spoke, stoke this like culture war attack on public universities, start to strip the funding. That's when these things start getting so expensive. So Sean Hannity went to school at a time when <laughs> these institutions were way, 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 way cheap, cheaper, why? Because they received greater subsidies from the government. So uh, the, the producer says, you want us to believe in the American way, which is capitalism and freedom. Now, first of all, on the capitalism point, yes, there are many aspects of this country that are uh, capitalistic. But then there's also a really strong tradition in this country of uh, New Deal politics, of social democracy, mm -hmm. social security, Medicare, Medicaid. And these programs are some of the most popular programs in the country. So you definitely have both things there. But when they say, hey, this is capitalism and you want us to support this, there's an admission in there. The admission is the system was working great. And the system had $1.9 trillion worth of student loan debt. Right. These people being behind the eight ball before they ever get out into the real world. It's some weird form of indentured servitude. Yeah. And then also to the point of, oh, you want us to believe in capitalism and freedom. Hold on now. To what extent are you really free if you're getting price gouged for everything before you even have a shot at trying to make it in the meritocracy? Yeah, are right. you really free if you're saddled with, you know, thousands of dollars in, in, in medical debt, for example? Are you free? Is that free? Are you, are you really free if you got $70,000 in, in student loan debt? No, you're free to try your best to pay that back by any means necessary. And if that means taking some soulless shit-ass job that you hate in order to do it, well, then you're going to do that. Yeah. Right? There, there's no, this is a point that I've been trying to make for a long time, which is left of center politics, social democracy into the left of it. 
the, a lot of the people who advocate for this and believe in this believe in it because it does give you more freedom. That is more freedom. It is freedom to say, you know what? Certain things are off the table in a civilized society. You know, you're going to have a roof over your head. You're going to have your health care paid for. You're going to have your education paid for. And then we can reasonably say, hey, in this 100-yard dash of life, we're all starting at the zero-yard line. You're not starting at the negative 70-yard line. And, right. and Mitt Romney's kid is not starting at the 80-yard line. Well, you know what I'm saying? And you see this very clearly when you look at the data of how millennials are doing versus how older generations are doing. And at every single milestone, millennials are behind, whether it's starting a family, buying a house, having kids. And a big part of the reason that they're behind is because they've been saddled with this massive amount of debt. And there's been, you know, a lot of sort of caricature-ish painting of who is benefiting from this policy. You know, if you ask most Republicans, it's like gender studies, people. wealthy gender studies majors and lawyers and doctors and whatever. The reality is actually 63% of people over the age of 25 in America have some college education. Now they don't all finish their degree, but actually those are the most sympathetic cases because they got the debt and they didn't even get the degree. That's why you're seeing a lot of the leaders of the new labor movement have some college education. Chris Malls at Amazon Labor Union and Derek Palmer, both college community college dropouts. Um, Jazz Brzezak over at Starbucks, who was one of the first workers to help organize in Buffalo and help spark this nationwide labor movement, was literally a Rhodes Scholar. And so, you know, you have all the smearing of like the Starbucks barista who spent seven years in college and wasted their time. And now they're, they're slack or like working at Starbucks. It just shows real contempt for the working class. And it also shows how narrow their definition of the working classes. But even, and I know this is a point you've made often as well, even if you're looking at their narrow definition of like white dudes in hard hats or driving a truck, a lot of those people have student loan debt as well. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a very, their whole thing is very caricature-ish. And you can really tell that this is like a moral issue to them. I mean, that's when when she's talking about we believe in the American way and Sean Hannity saying, like, I think it's good for your character to have to pay off, like, mountains of student loan debt. They really see this as, like, an attack on a, a core moral value, but they don't seem to have that same issue when it's gigantic corporations who are getting big give it, giveaways or rich people as, you know, in the tax cut plan that passed under Trump that are getting gigantic giveaways. Suddenly they don't have those same concerns and compunctions about the moral hazard involved. It's just when you're talking about poor working class, middle class people that suddenly they've got to be disciplined. We've got to keep them in line. They've got to build that character. We've got to make sure that we've um, got them under sufficient stress and strain. Otherwise they may get out of control. They view poverty as a moral failing, as a character flaw, as something you earned. Right. And to them, it's not about a broken system that takes good people and renders them hopeless and in trouble. But again, you know, some of the facts I always come back to are the idea that we have millions of people who are working poor in this country. They work a full-time job and they're still poor. You can't look me in the eyes and tell me, well, you just got to try harder. What do you mean? They're doing the thing that society says they have to do in order to get ahead, and they're not getting ahead. Right. The minimum wage is not even a living wage in this country. Right. You made a couple great points there. Uh, underemployment is a huge problem. Yes. People who graduated, and then they end up taking whatever job they can get because there's, you know, they can't find a job in the field that they've studied for. Now, these guys would turn around and blame those individuals, but 
It makes no sense to blame those individuals. Well, and at the same time, they'll blame those individuals, but then they'll also turn around and talk about the failures of the college education system and how it hasn't lived up to its promises. And in fact, you know, the uh, there's new data out about how the college wage premium, so the amount in addition that you get on your salary because you have a college degree, is declining. So the promise of college education that this is like a clear economic win if you just take on the debt and make the investment, like this is the surefire way to the middle class, that promise has ended up being incredibly hollow, especially for those who graduated in the Great Recession. And I suspect, especially for those who graduated also into the pandemic, where this, they t- it turned out they were sold a bill of goods. So when um, this lady he's talking to says something like, I'm not even sure college is really worth it considering like what they're teaching our kids. She has a point in that the promise of college has not lived up to expectations. You still have so many millions who graduate or who can't graduate because the debt burden and the costs are too high and they have to drop out. And then you're totally hosed and you're behind, you know, for your entire life. It impacts the entire trajectory of your life. Millennials have about 3% of national wealth. Boomers have almost 60% of national wealth. Yeah. So the idea, you know, you take the boot off the neck a little bit and, oh, my God, this is crazy. Where does it stop? Yeah. <gasps> Where does it stop? Are we going to get rid of health care debt next? I fucking hope so. Yeah, I please. fucking hope so. And the final point I want to make, which is one I made um, time and time again, is one I just forgot. <laughs> no, there was, uh, oh, the, you know, when, when they're like, when they talk about how people say, I, I paid off everything I mm-hmm. owed, so what the hell? I find that just as stupid as, uh, like, when you give women the right to vote, somebody says, well, what about all the women who lived and died and didn't have the right to vote? This isn't fair to them. Right. Or the day you end indentured servitude, like, what about all the people who lived and died as indentured servants? This isn't fair to them. Yeah. Like, no, if, if a good thing is a good thing, then, as Martin Luther King famously said, the time is always right to do what's right. Yeah. So, you know, you can't, I find those objections so absurd. It's like saying we have to live in a perpetually unfair system because if we make it a fair system, then it's unfair to the people who got fucked already. Yeah. I also get really frustrated with the argument that like, well, this doesn't fix everything. It's like, no shit. (laughs) No one said that it does, but this is what we can do right now. So why not do that? And by the way, I think by taking this step right now, you start to build uh, momentum and an intellectual, the intellectual groundwork to do more because you're basically making a case to the nation that these students were ripped off, um, that they deserve help, and that the college system is broken. So yeah, that creates an opening for, okay, well, let's do more. Let's figure out what happened here. Let's have free college. Let's have, you know, tuition control so it doesn't continue to skyrocket out of control. Let's reinvest the public sector into education. So it's about education again, instead of about, you know, um, like fitness fitness palaces and all these extra amenities that have made the costs continue to escalate and escalate completely out of control. And that's the other reason why some of these people are shrieking is because some of them know, Ted Cruz knows, for example, that yeah. like, yeah, this is actually going to help, gonna help the Democrats. Democrats. Yes. And so they're throwing everything they well, got at it, which is, by the way, politically we backfiring. Sh- and we should also say it's not just Republicans. Like some of the people freaking out and melting down the most are neoliberal Democrats. Um, Tim uh, Ryan. Yeah, Tim Ryan, Paul, Paul Begala. I mean, Tim Ryan is just a total shameless political operator. He thinks that this is the right position to take right. in Ohio, which I don't even think is correct. <laughs> it's definitely not correct. So he's like just trying to put his finger in the wind and just failing to do that. Um, but uh, Paul Begala is a great example. Larry Summers is a great example. Jason Furman, who was an Obama economic advisor. I mean, they have been melting down over this. And I think it's because it really represents a direct challenge to their economic ideology, which has been dominant now for at least 
40, probably 50 years in this country. See, for those guys, I actually think that they are stupid enough to think this is bad politics. Whereas with some of the conservatives, I think they know actually this is going to help them and we don't like that. Like notice Trump hasn't said a single word about this. Why? Because I think he knows that it's popular. And so if he goes out there and is like, oh, I'm against this, it's a little more, you know, that's a more of a risk. Yeah. Um, I Maybe. Maybe some of them have convinced themselves of that. But now we have the polling to prove like quite otherwise. I mean, you have almost two thirds of the country in several polls saying like, yeah, we support that or we this or we think that it should go further. Um, I honestly think for a guy like Larry Summers, who has been a primary architect of the like neoliberal economic order we've been living in, um, especially with the Clinton era and also was an advisor with Obama and now apparently also has Joe Biden's ear at times. Um, I think he feels this type of blanket debt forgiveness to be a direct affront to like his legacy and his worldview. And that's why you react so strongly to it. it. Well, it definitely is that. It definitely is an affront to their whole project and their whole worldview. I just also think they might believe their own bullshit and drink their own Kool-Aid on that. Like Very I think possible. Larry Summers might actually think, like, Very this possible. is a bad idea politically. It's not even going to be poppopular. <laughs> it's very popular. <laughs> anyway. All right, guys. So um, let's talk a little bit about Joe Biden mm-hmm. um, came out in a speech recently, and he did not mince words, and he said that uh, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, they're effectively semi-fascists. Yes. So that's what he said. Now, that was part of uh, the same speech where he went after Republicans aggressively for voting against the IRA, for voting against the CHIPS Act. He sort of listed a whole bunch of things, like every single Republican voted against lower prescription drug prices. Every single Republican voted against, you know, whatever, uh, fill in the blank with, you know, 15% corporate minimum tax rate. He went in. And yeah. it was very clearly not the Biden we're used to seeing where, yeah. you know, oh, their feeble will break and they'll work with us after Trump. <laughs> yeah. No, that didn't happen. But now yeah. it looks like at, at a thousand years old, he's finally like, oh, yeah, maybe they're. Maybe these guys are part of the problem. Right. Who yeah. would have thought it? So he says the semi-fascism thing. And um, of course, the right is. Oh, there's a meltdown. Over they're it. melting down over it. And they're acting like Trump never said anything that was even close to as egregious as this. It's like, are you kidding me? That was a random Tuesday for Donald Trump. Yeah. When he launched his fucking campaign, he said, you know, uh, the Mexicans, they're criminals, they're rapists. <laughs> I assume some are good people. He launched his fucking campaign by saying, remember, he called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims coming in the. Like, again, this is, this is child's play for Donald right. Trump. He probably calls Biden and every single Democrat a communist before he eats fucking breakfast over on Truth Social. True. Okay, so anyway, Larry Hogan, who's a uh, moderate Republican governor. Maryland, right? That's where he's the governor? Yes, correct. He he comes out and, you know, he's trying to pave a lane for himself on and the Republican side, which is literally the most hilarious thing I've ever heard. Good luck, bro. This guy, I mean, dude, he wouldn't even get 1%. He wouldn't even get 1%. No. It would be the saddest thing I've ever seen, but he clearly wants to run for president. He comes out, he's going to take a stand here against Biden and tell you why this rhetoric is not good. Take a look. So you heard my conversation with the DNC chair Harrison about semi-fascism as a label that President Biden has applied to Republicans. What do you think of that? You know, I think it's that kind of uh, divisive rhetoric on both sides that's really bad for America. And, you know, I've been talking about the toxic politics. And when uh, if Republicans are calling Democrats socialists and communists and we have the president of the United States calling Republicans fascists, I don't think it adds to the, you know, the the overall discussion. We all just talk about the differences we have on the issues and and focus on the problems that most people in America want us to focus on. All right. So let me ask you, I actually think this is a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Number one, should Biden have actually called Republicans semi-fascists? So there's a question of, is it accurate? And then there's also a question of, is it 
politically intelligent to do so? So is it strategic to do so? So go ahead, take a crack okay, at Okay, so those. first I want to read what he said here so sure. we have the complete context. He says, what we're seeing now is either the beginning or the death knell of extreme MAGA philosophy. He called out those he labeled as extreme Republicans and said, it's not just Trump, it's the entire philosophy that underpins the, I'm going to say something, it's like semi-fascism. So in terms of, is it accurate? I think it's hard to deny in terms of Republican elites and some of the figures that they nominated that it's accurate. I mean, Trump literally just put out a statement this week that was like, you should basically install me as dictator. He did do that. So <laughs> he did do that. Like, yep. Kind of hard to deny. Now, where I always draw the line here is, um, and this is, you know, across the board, you can say, like, go after the people in power. I mean, the Trumps right. of the mm -hmm. world, the other uh, people who are elected in office, who are running for elected office, like, be relentless in calling them out, call them semi like, be, sure, be accurate, but these people deserve your total and complete scorn. That's different from the general population. And this is what Republicans are trying to do with this is to right, say, say they're talking they're, about you. Yeah, they're talking yeah. about you. He just called half the country fascist. And no, that is just not even close that's to true. Not, that's yeah. not what he said. And I think he was pretty careful to make it clear that he's talking about um, Trump and his sort of like allies and acolytes in Republican leadership. Um, but yeah, if you're going after them, I have no problem with it. And in fact, Listen, in terms of the political, uh, the political calculation here, I also actually think it's sound because part of the reason why Republicans are struggling right now is because independents and moderates are more likely to label their candidates as extreme. So in terms of political messaging, I also don't think it's a bad thing because regular American voters are also looking at these candidates and going like, what the hell is wrong with you on things like abortion and on election conspiracies and on other issues? Um, and the other thing that I'll say uh, finally is it has been nice to finally have Joe Biden apparently at the age of however old he is realize that the Republicans are a major issue in Washington and you're not going to be able to like hold hands with Mitch McConnell and sing Kumbaya and work things out. That's not where they are today. And so the fact that he seems to have woken up to that reality is, I think, part of why he's scored some significant wins here in the past couple of weeks. Okay, so here's my breakdown of it. Now, on the first first question is accuracy. Okay, is it accurate? Well, I'm going to read, this is from Robert Paxton, who's a political scientist and an expert on fascism. Yeah. And I'm just going to give you some of the traits they say okay. about fascism here. So, a sense of overwhelming crisis beyond the reach of any traditional solutions. Okay. The primacy Check. of the group toward which one has duties superior to every right, whether individual or universal, and the subordination of the individual to it. So sort of like a mob mentality type okay. thing. The belief that one's group is a victim, a sentiment that justifies any action yeah. without legal or moral limits against its enemies, both internal and external. Yes. Dread of the group's decline under the corrosive effects of individualistic liberalism, class conflict, and alien influences. Okay. The need for closer integration of a purer community by consent if possible or by exclusionary violence if necessary. Okay. The need for authority by natural chiefs, always male, culminating in a national chieftain who alone is capable of incarnating the group's historical destiny. The superiority of the leader's instincts over abstract and universal reason. The beauty of violence and the efficacy of will when they are devoted to the group's success. Yeah. The right of the chosen people to dominate others without restraint from any kind of human or divine law, 
right being decided by the sole criterion of the group's prowess within a Darwinian struggle. Mm. So that's his academic breakdown. The layman's definition, of course, is uh, fascism is far-right, authoritarian, ultra-nationalist political ideology. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And usually they embrace autocracy, militarism, forcible suppression of opposition, belief in a natural social hierarchy, um, and that that's the gist of it. So in terms of the accuracy of it, he I think he has a very sound argument that yeah. what we're seeing now on the far right yeah. is at the very least semi-fascism. You might even call it fascism. Yeah, I mean, you see this like authoritarian instinct, certainly, like I just am going to assert that I'm the leader of the country, I'm the rightful leader, and election results be damned. You have the cultural personality and you have from a lot of these, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene types, like a glorification of the idea of like a civil war. Right, That that's all true. Yeah. Um, now in terms of, I will say though, I am sympathetic to people who are normies, they are not political junkies, and when they hear rhetoric like this, they might actually equate it to like, this is when people were calling Barack Obama a Muslim Marxist or communist, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So they'll say, oh, it's kind of, you know, equal extremism on both sides. So I'm actually sympathetic to the idea also that when somebody brings up fascism, the only thing that pops into most people's minds is Mussolini and Hitler. You know, like, and if you equate those two with fascism, then any sort of comparison between any American politician figure and that is they would say offensive and wrong so i guess my point here is um i understand the the criticism of hey maybe don't use that but what i would say is and i don't even think this you could argue against this is if you're not going to use that term you better use authoritarian because that is 100 percent accurate and it doesn't have the historical baggage that fascism does yeah fascism has also in fairness been thrown around a lot in the Trump era. Correct. At times, I think, accurately. At times, inaccurately. Correct. And so it also has become, like, that's part of the context that people hear it in now is just like, oh, here goes these liberals right. hyperventilating mm-hmm. again against about something. But I don't think it's equal either. Sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, I just don't think, like, you know, the, the point that Hogan made of, like, yeah, you got people on the right calling these people on the left socialists and communists, and that's not fair. And the left calling people on the right fascist, that's not fair. I think it's much more fair yeah, right. when you look at Trump, who literally just said, install me as president again without an election or redo an election of which there's no legal authority to do any of that yeah. shit. Yeah, I think that's fair to use the, the F word for that. And, and sent that cryptic message to the Department of Justice of like, oh, temperature's really hot right now. Better, better cool it down and sending his little, you know, friend Lindsey Graham out on television. He was be like, there are going to be riots in the street. Again, the glorification of violence and threats of violence to achieve an end that he's unlikely to achieve through like conventional democratic or legal process. He was saying we should kill drug dealers. Death penalty for drug dealers. You yeah. can use the F word for that. I'm totally fine with using the F word for that. Yeah. But I disagree. Even the furthest left figure in the Democratic Party, they are social Democrats. Even Bernie calls himself a democratic socialist. He ain't a fucking democratic socialist. He's a social democrat. Yeah, um, agree. So once one piece of that equation is accurate and the other piece is not accurate. And then it's also, I mean, Larry Hogan is a perfect example of the like DC uh, sort of like pieties around language and the norms and like, oh, we have to like, we have to have this bipartisan comedy while we're screwing people over. We're just not like talking about it in sort of like uncouth language. And I find that kind of like civility humping extremely irritating as well. So, and and to wrap up, let me, let me agree and buttress one of the points that you made before, which I think is even more correct than you realize. Okay. <laughs> which is, you made the point, but somehow, I, you know, I'm sort of going above and beyond that point to further agree with it. Okay, so um, if anything, his language here is too soft, not just because he used the semi word, yeah. 
but also because he's making a distinction even among elected Republicans. Where right. he says there's the Trump types who are, you know, the fascist types, and then there's the non-Trump Republicans who, according to people like Nancy Pelosi, are, you know, we need a big, strong Republican Party. Where's right. the, my Republican Party back? I hate that distinction because even with what you'd say is the best of the best of the anti-Trump Republicans, it's Liz Cheney who voted with Trump 93% of the time. Right. So if anything, you're too soft on the elected officials and you're too strong. Well, he didn't say it, but the taste you have in your mouth is he's perhaps too strong against your average Republican voter. Mm. Where I always try to make a strong distinction between here are the elected officials, they're the problem, and it's virtually all of the elected Republicans. You know, fuck your caveats. I throw in Liz Cheney with the Donald Trumps, even though they disagree on one fucking issue. Well, and even if you want to give Liz Cheney credit and say, well, she doesn't literally want to overturn the election, so she may have an ideology that's abhorrent, but I wouldn't call her a fascist. Like, even if you want to give her that credit, like, she was just drummed out of the party. Like, it's very clear there's no also, room. Also, she supported an election being stolen in 2000. Right. So it's not like it's a principled and objection was, to elections being stolen. And that time, they were successful. Right, so. exactly. <laughs> and I didn't hear so. you crying about it then. But yeah, I mean, look, it's clear that there's no room for the Liz Cheneys in the part. That's not what the party is. The party, and this is, I think, part of why the the fascism or semi-fascism label kind of fits. Like, the party's about one thing, your loyalty to Donald Trump, the charismatic, like, leader, daddy figure. And so... You know, they've made it a cult of personality. If you're on the wrong side of that issue, then you're going to get tossed down. That's been very clear in uh, the primaries this year. So I'm trying to look up right now as I'm talking to you. Um, Mitt Romney, who's viewed, who's held up as like the... The reasonable Republican. The reasonable Republican. And it looks like he's voted with Trump 75% of the time. So look, I'm I'm a huge fan of nuance on this show. So you want to tell me the specific issues where Romney's better? I'm listening. Yeah. Right. But but I do think it's fair to say that in general, the party, the elected officials are extremist. Voters are a different question. There's some percentage that are extremists among the voters, but sure. you know I don't like doing the whole broad generalization about the voters. I think you need yeah. to be even more nuanced with the voters. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's where I land on that. Is that the language is relatively accurate. If anything, he's too soft on the elected officials. And I think the meltdown is uh, obviously absurd. And Larry that, Hogan's comments are ridiculous. That, are you concerned about political blowback over? No, it or, I think it works. And, yeah. and here's why. Here's why. It's intuitively connecting with independents now and just run of the mill voters Agreed. because they see everything that's going on with the January 6th committee, with Trump saying the insane shit he's saying, which is getting headlines everywhere. Right. With Roe versus Wade being overturned. Yeah. With. Republicans voting against health care for veterans who are toxic burn pit victims. Yeah. People see that, and the accurate reaction to that is, that's fucking extremism. That's right. extremism. And I don't like that at all. And so it's intuitively landing. Yeah, and that was exactly, the, the CBS News Battleground Tracker tested this of, like, which candidates do people think are extreme? And you have uh, women and independents are more likely to say it's Republicans who've been nominating candidates they'd call extreme, more so than Democrats nominees. And so I think it does fit into what has been a very effective um, attack line from Democrats. They mostly start with the issue of abortion, you know, exposing what are wildly out of the mainstream Wild. views on forcing rape children to bear their rapist babies and these sorts of things. Um, but it connects to a broader argument about just these candidates are really out there. Like you may not be totally satisfied with Joe Biden and the Democrats and the economy is not amazing and all that, but these people are really, really out there. So I think it 
lands in that political context. And I do also think that because Joe Biden has by and large been very restrained in the type of rhetoric that he has used about Republicans, people also have that as background context that he's not one of these people that's just been like running around with their hair on fire all the time. Yeah, but I I mean, you're right. But I also would have liked it if all along he was hammering this home because a trick that I think the right is phenomenal at, that the left has been terrible at or Democrats have been terrible at, is the idea of repetition until you make it the duh position. And this is what happened with Obamacare. Like when Obamacare initially passed, you had people on the right over and over and over saying, they're going to kill your grandma. They have death panels. They're going to kill your grandma. They have death panels. Mm -hmm. They're going to kill your grandma. They have death panels. And you would think the reaction from the public would be, that's so absurd. Of course, that's not the case. This is ridiculous. But no, the reaction was they repeated it so many fucking times that the reaction from people was, even if that's not true, I don't sort of trust this thing anymore. There must so, be something there. So there's got to be something You're there. Like, it so may not drove be it down. Ground, but there's got to be an issue. So something there. You yeah. repeat over and over and over and over. It becomes the duh position. So Biden's trying to make it. Yeah, Republicans, the fascists. My bottom line takeaway is that I've been happy to see Joe Biden for the first time seem to actually understand like where he should be training his fire and not always at the left part of his party. Dark branded baby. Yeah, that's right. Have you been following this? scandal around the prime minister of Finland? Sort of. Okay, so her name is, I'm going to butcher this, but Sanna Marin? Yes. And um, she's a 36-year-old woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, many are saying she's very attractive. I'm sure you wouldn't notice anything like and that. And never. I, don't, I didn't even know she was a woman. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so she, she went out partying. And again, this is while she's prime minister. She went out partying and there were you know, pictures of her and she was dancing and they were having fun. So guys, go ahead and throw that that graphic up on the screen there so we can show everybody. Now on the right here is Santa Marin. Um, and on the left, you see Hillary Clinton came out in support of Santa Marin. And this is her from when she was Secretary of State. Hillary's dancing there. You can see her, you know, taking a, a nice gulp of a beer there as well. And, you know, in the Santa Marin video, there's a video of it. I, I, yeah, it's not that dancing. long. Dancing, dancing, really going in. Very like, you know, college frat party Let, vibes. Letting go. Just letting loose. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so a little bit of a scandal around that. Um, sort of divided people in Finland and the conversation I saw and it was mixed. But the general argument, at least from the media, seems to be like, look, we're holding women to a different standard here because, okay, yeah, she's the prime minister, but what, you can never party, you can never have fun, you can never sort of let loose, you can never, you know, be sexy. Uh, That seems to be the general thrust of it. And the argument is, well, a man in a similar situation just wouldn't get the same kind of scrutiny. They just, yeah. People would just overlook it. And, you know, if, if there was a video of Obama partying when he was president, people would be like, oh, that's so cool. Or, you know, uh, some other relatively similar figure in that situation. You think they would think that was cool? I think Obama I do. I would, think that if Obama did it, it would turn into like a meme and... and I think he'd be... I think it'd be divisive, like divided the way that this is well, too. Well, no, I think just the right would attack yeah. Obama over it, but yeah. it'd be very ginned up and fake. Yeah. You know but, what I'm saying? Yeah, well, this might be too. I don't I don't know. But I mean, I, okay. So I actually, there's, there's a lot to say about this, even though the most important thing for me to say is that I don't care that much or think it's that important. But I think the issues with it are very interesting. So first of all, as a woman 
who as a young woman running for office had a whole like fake scandal over photos of me partying. So tame. When you look back now, it's like, really, this was a scandal? I would be a hypocrite if I was like outraged at, oh my God, how can you like have photos of this woman and this is inappropriate? Oh my dear God, how could you? Um, So that's number one. Hold on. The picture was from when you were running. It was from before Before you were even in office. Yeah, so it is a little bit. totally different. It is a little bit different. Okay, so, but I I do want to say like in general, I'm not, clutching my pearls over this or, like, outraged by it or think this is some, like, national disgrace or shame or whatever. Um, I also, I think I disagree with you about whether this would be a thing if it was a male politician. Like, I think if Biden... Well, I'm saying the argument people are making. I didn't necessarily yeah. co-sign oh, okay. that. okay. I thought you were co-sign Okay, so I think if, like, in our American political context, I think if Biden, you know, if there was videos of him, like... You know, seeming like they they were trying to make it like she was on drugs. Apparently, she wasn't on drugs. But if he was, like, going crazy and drinking and getting wild till all hours, and I guess there were, like, some topless photos or something in an official residence or whatever that came out to, not of her, but of some of her guests. If that came out, especially at a time when, you know, it was very serious times in the country, very serious times in the world, um, and I don't know specifically the domestic political context in Finland, but I'm sure they're facing inflation and high energy prices and a lot of the same struggles that we're facing here as well. I think that the right would try to make hay out of that, and I think they would be pretty successful because they'd say, look, he's not doing, he's distracted from his job. Like, he's not taking this seriously, and this is a serious moment for the country, and this is a serious moment for the world. So I don't think it's only sexism. Like, the Hillary Clinton and a lot of media figures want to make this, like, it's only sexism that she's being treated this way. However, I do think that, like, the two things— um, Like, the two things overlap. I do think that there's a discomfort with the fact that she's, like, this young, attractive woman, like, looking and being sexy and being sort of, like, wild and free in this way. There's, like, a discomfort with this isn't the way our leaders have historically looked and behaved. There's a discomfort with powerful women also still, like, maintaining a sex appeal. They're supposed to be just, like, you know, sort of neutral, like, sexless beings in a lot of respects. Um, So I do think that there's a discomfort there that turns this into a bit of a lightning rod controversy. What I read about um, how it's being perceived in Finland, there's a real generational divide, which makes a lot of sense. Like, older um, people are more sort of, like, this is an institution and you show respect and there's a way we do things and there's decorum and all of these things that they're more attached to. Young people are like, this is great because I relate to her and like, this makes me feel like maybe I could be in government and, you know, I actually affirmatively like this. One thing that did change my feeling about it a little bit is, because I I didn't really know anything about Santa Marin. She came into office very much like very upfront about I'm going to continue to be like a normal person in office. And she has like a trademark leather jacket that she wears and like famously went to rock concerts and stuff like that. She was elected at 34. So I also sort of feel like she was kind of upfront with the population when she was running of like, this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. And she still ends up in the position. So that also did kind of like shape how I viewed this too. She was elected at 34. That's yeah. very young. Now, very I, w- young. I was going to say some mildly critical things, but I yeah. just uh, Wikipedia'd her, and she's apparently a member of the Social Democratic Party of Finland. Yeah, so, so now I have nothing but positive yeah, things to great. say about her because social democracy Go is based. Anyway, no, but okay, for real. So here, here was my thinking on this. The initial reaction, of course, is a reaction to the reactionaries where I'm like, who cares? Get the fuck over it. Like, exactly. That's the initial, you know, that's the initial, as long as you're still like doing your work and doing well and 
pushing for the proper policies. I don't care, right? Yeah. But then I just stop and think about it and to just play devil's advocate for a second. And part of me does think this. Like I was thinking if I was president, what would I be doing? There is no world in which I'm president and I'm doing what she was doing. None. Right. Because when like there's so much shit on the menu for you to take care of that you are like directly responsible for. Granted, if I, she's prime minister, I would be president in the context of the United yeah. States of America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she probably has, relatively speaking, a little fewer responsibilities than Joe Biden does, right? Yeah. But still a decent amount of responsibilities. And, um, you know, I actually want somebody who's like a flat out workaholic and totally obsessively dedicated with a one track mind to doing the job that needs to be done in office. Yeah. And so, but then, but the thing is, you have to be consistent. If, if that's the stance you're going to take, then it, whether it's Santa Marin, whether if, if it was Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders was called partying, LOL, by the way. <laughs> right? Hilarious. Uh, that would, uh, people would love We're that. over here listening <laughs> to the Beatles, and it is wonderful. <laughs> I want to hold your hand. <laughs> see, we would all love that. Yeah, Maybe see, it is sexism. No, but, no, but see, that's, I was just about to make that point, too, because my thought was if Biden was caught doing it, I'd probably be like, ha, ha, ha. Look at this, <laughs> right? But she did it, and a part of me was like, like, just go do some work type shit, right? Mm. So now I don't think that's from a gender bias as much as it's from I we just Biden just came off of getting the Chips Act passed, just came off of getting the the uh, IRA passed with a fifteen percent corporate minimum tax rate, yeah. funded Obamacare. I think it's also like he's been on the war path I mean, recently. The reason it'd be hilarious with Biden or Bernie is because it's so against type, right? Right. So yeah. that's part of why it's hilarious with the two of them. You know, yeah. versus so it's not necessarily like a gendered reaction, although I don't think we should discount the fact that that's a piece of it potentially, too. Yeah. Well, anyway, I was trying to examine my own bias here in a sense, because I did feel like if I saw a video of Biden doing it, I just kind of laugh. Yeah. Uh, but what do you what did you th- do you remember? Because I vaguely remember when those Hillary Clinton photos no, came out. I don't out. remember that at all. No. I do. And the right kind of made a thing of it. And, you know, I remember at the time being like. Stop. Like, who cares? But see, you know? okay, uh, right. That's my dominant sentiment, too. But there is a part of me that also thinks like, no, I actually do want the people who are secretary of state in the U.S. or president of the U.S. or prime minister of Finland or whatever. Why aren't you people obsessed with your job where that other stuff just doesn't happen? Yeah. Where you're working like 14 hour days, 15 hour days, where that's your one track mind type shit. But with Hillary Clinton, it wasn't the problem with her wasn't her lack of like hard work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was not. It was her ideology, right? For me, it's her ideology Which, and her corruption. That's my concern with her. So when I saw her like drinking a beer and dancing, at, that didn't strike it like a core concern of like, oh, why aren't you working harder? No, right. maybe and, it'd be better if you worked less hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're less involved. <laughs> it is kind of like the argument that both sides make when the president of the opposing party goes on vacation where they're like, there they are on vacation again. And I yeah. always look at that and think, but hold on, if you're the GOP Twitter account, yeah. don't you want Biden to not be in office and right. not make policy decisions? Wouldn't you rather him be in Delaware 24-7? And vice versa with Trump. When he used to go golfing, be, oh my God, he's golfing again. It's like, right. don't you want that? Well, part part of why I um, discount a bit that this is an entirely gendered reaction is because those sort of attacks, I mean, they used to attack Obama all the time for playing golf. Like, that was a relentless right-wing attack on mm-hmm. Obama, was, like, going out and playing golf. They're doing that now with uh, with Biden in terms of his visits to Delaware. Um, actually, Rick Scott hilariously was caught, like, tweeting out, like, oh, Biden's in Delaware again, while he was literally on the deck of a super yacht in Italy. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is kind of amazing. Um, but, I mean, I agree with you that, There is something to seeing those photos, especially at a time 
of, you know, national difficulties, national crisis, like food prices, uh, energy prices escalating, people struggling, to then see your elites out, like, partying in, in this very carefree way, there is something about that that is grating outside of the uh, gendered aspect. Now, what did and that and I I had that reaction too. What did kind of change my mind though was the fact that she really co- sort of was like upfront about this when she was campaigning. Like I'm going to keep partying. I'm going to well, keep being me. I'm going to wear my leather jacket. I'm going to go to my rock festivals. Like this is who I am. This is part of what I'm bringing to office. And people were like, okay, we accept that. And also. Being a member of the Social Democratic Party, I'm inclined to probably agree with most of her politics. And so that makes me want to go softer on her. But at the same time, that should make me want to go harder on her because I should be like, why aren't you in office doing more social democracy stuff? True. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway. Or like hold her to a higher standard. Or like, don't fuck this up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Hillary, of course, had to make it cringe by coming in with like the over-the-top support. Yeah. You know? I also like, I, yeah. I also was wondering if my reaction was influenced by Hillary taking her side. That made me want to err more on the side of like, well, maybe these conservatives have mm-hmm. a point. Yeah, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I, honestly, I don't even know who it was that was uh, criticizing her. I just saw the whole scandal, saw a bunch of articles, saw a bunch of headlines, and was like, "Oh, people are talking about this a lot." That is a good question. Of was this who was criticizing her? Because yeah. I mean, I know that there was a domestic internal backlash over the photos. Yeah. I mean, she tearfully responded and was like, "I'm just a human being. Sometimes I have to like have joy and fun so, in my life it's just too." It's so quaint compared to U.S. politics. Totally. Like, look at what's going on in the U.S. right now. Totally. Trump's like, how about we try fascism? I'll lead us. Right. <laughs> and she's like, sorry, I'm so sorry. I was dancing. I was dancing. I <laughs> is that, is that a Finnish accent? Did I just do a Finnish accent? I literally do not know. <laughs> I'm so, top of the morning, Tay, I'm so sorry I was dancing. But then <laughs> uh, to get back to like the gender part, I do think part of why this becomes this like global scandal conversation is because she's a young, attractive woman. And that's just like unusual yeah. to have as the a head of state. Well, to be fair, Boris Johnson, he got caught with his parties and that became a big scandal. Yeah, but Remember, that but was, was COVID during related. COVID. It was COVID related. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that was directly because they were supposed to be in lockdown and he and his people were like having wild parties every week and then consistently, and that even wasn't even the biggest problem. Then he kept lying about it right, and getting yeah. caught. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I, you know, I mean, obviously his parties became an issue. I don't know if they, I don't actually really think they would have in and of themselves just because Boris Johnson's another one of these characters that I think people would have kind of expected that. Out it's of funny that like quote unquote leadership world leaders are acting exactly like the kids who are going to college and are not allowed to party, but they go out and party anyway. Yeah. Like the, our world leaders are exactly the same. You yeah. know, they're like, let's do some kickstands, bro. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, it's kind of, it's crazy. Anyway, yeah. so those are our thoughts on it. As you could tell, I've, I've, I've thought about it from both perspectives and ultimately I do fall more on the side of like, Whatever. Whatever. Who cares? But there is still a part of me that's like, I know if I was in that position, I just wouldn't be partying that much. But we're but, also, I mean. But that's also kind of bullshit from from me too, because it's not like I wouldn't play golf still. You would play golf still. I play golf. Well, and I guess that's the thing is like, this is how she This is right. Unwind. This is how she unwinds. This is her thing. Yeah, like, true. We aren't president and we don't go out. So of course, that's if we true, were president, yeah. we wouldn't go out because that's not what we do to unwind. That's not our outlet. Yeah. But for her- it is. And again, she was very upfront about that when she was running. It's not like it was a secret. Yeah. So, yeah. So my overall thought is who really cares? And my secondary thought is also who really cares? Fair enough. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about this scandal or so-called scandal around Ben Shapiro. Um, this is funny. So um, Ben Shapiro showed up to this 
podcast conference called the Podcast Movement. Yes. Uh, they they have it's it's at Podcast Movement on Twitter. Their little name is Podcast Movement at PM twenty two. Uh, so th- he showed up to it. He was apparently in the area. I don't know if yeah. It doesn't seem like he was invited. Okay. Here's the backstory. Okay. So uh, Daily Wire had a booth in the expo area that they were allowed to purchase, and so of course there were like Daily Wire people there. But the podcast movement people, for whatever reason, I guess they were happy to take their money, but they did not think that Ben Shapiro himself would be there. Um, which, which is, by the way, that's a weird... Silly, right? That's a weird distinction to draw. Totally. Totally. The Daily You're Wire allowed to have is the Ben Shapiro's news outlet. outlet there that is basically Ben Shapiro's baby, but you think that you can sort of like not not have it. So you can take the money, but not get whatever backlash they apparently got from having Ben Shapiro actually there. So let me t- give everybody what they tweeted. So this podcast movement thing says, "This is hi, so folks. Cringe. We owe you an apology before sessions kick off for the day." Yesterday afternoon, Ben Shapiro briefly visited the PM22 Expo area near the Daily Wire booth. Though he was not registered or expected, we take full responsibility for the harm done by his presence. Those of you who called this unacceptable (laughs) are right. In nine wonderful years, growing and celebrating this medium, PM has made mistakes. The pain caused by this one will always stick with us. We promise that sponsors will be more carefully considered moving forward. So, uh... (laughs) Shuan had had a good reaction to this on Twitter. She was basically joking around and saying, like, what, was Ben Shapiro, like, roundhouse kicking people in the back of the head as he was going to the booth? Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) The harm harm caused by Ben Shapiro. Are you kidding me? Uh, It's, I mean, it's just, it almost seems like a parody. It it does. A total liberal, like, this was actual violence, just Ben Shapiro existing in my vicinity. So, um, Ben Shapiro, of course, not one to not capitalize on a situation like this. Mm -hmm. He comes out. And um, he says on his show, in order for you to understand the reaction, should I do it in the Ben Shapiro voice? Yeah. In order for you to understand the reaction from the left to my physical presence in this space, you have to understand just how intimidating I am. <laughs> According to the left, I'm one of the most intimidating people on, the, on planet Earth. I'm just, I'm absolutely terrifying. I'm scary. I'm threatening. I'm Darth Vader, right? I'm just, if I walk into a room, you don't know if I'm going to force choke you. You don't know that I'm going to strike you down with my lightsaber. You just don't know. <laughs> I'm a dangerous human being, according to the left. Uh, and then he continues here. Apparently, there were, it, when he was there, there were people who came up and uh, took some pictures with him and people who were admirers of him, uh, which I'm not surprised by any sort of podcast conference. There's yeah. going to be some segment that are right wing and some that like Ben Shapiro. He says, I mean, if this is the way you want it, this is the way you want it. If you want parallel economies, if you want parallel podcasting universes, if you want parallel advertising, if that's what you want, that is what you're going to get. And you're going to get it right in the face. The left is cruising for a bruising and they are asking for it. I don't really, that part I don't really understand. So I'll, I'll talk more about it in a second. Okay. I'm still not done. <laughs> oh, okay. There's more. Go on. We are willing to do this all this to all of you because if you wish to excise us, if you wish to cast us into the cornfield, we're not all just going away. Half the country isn't just going away. Our mere presence threatening you, we're not just leaving. We're not just going to surrender the playing field to, to all of you. So keep going. Seriously, do it. Dare us. Continue. We're not going to surrender to all these people who simply wish to, wish us to disappear. That's not something we are going to do. Okay, so to your question, um, the part of, like, the left is cruising for a bruising and they're yeah. asking for it. Well, yeah, what's I, he talking about? So I think that what he's talking about there is, like, because of this mindset, because of, like, the censorship, because of, you know, trying to not hear any counter opinions, uh, the left is either cruising for a bruising either in the media sphere or in the midterms for, for the congressional races. 
That's how I interpret that. I sort of interpret it as like a like a business thing because he's talking about like if we want to ha- split into two parallel universes, isn't that what he says? Yes. So he's talking about how you know some advertisers don't want to advertise on right wing media. So, Although I, by the way, I don't even really know what he's talking about because he's got advertisers out the wazoo, yeah, and I, we, as a matter of principle, right. have no advertisers. Right. But so I guess that's what he's kind of saying is like, well, you know, we'll get way more advertisers ultimately than the left if they want to play this game of like bifurcating the media with conservative companies advertising on conservative podcasts and left companies advertising on left podcasts. I, that was kind of how, I don't know. I don't really understand that part, but there's a couple things that I'll say about this. I mean, first of all, obviously, like the podcast movement thing is like totally silly and a <laughs> total meltdown. Absolutely ridiculous. No one would have even heard about the fact that they had Daily Wire or Ben Shapiro there if they hadn't tweeted out. They're like, it was, was actual violence Streisand thing. effect, right? It's a Streisand yes. effect. Yes, just ca- stop, calm down. Like it was, that was silly and absurd. So he's right about that and kind of his mockery of them is absolutely justified. What really irritates me though is the way he lumps like all the left into that. Like this is the left that takes this approach. Some factions of the left and certainly of liberals, but there are plenty of leftists who are anti-censorship and pro-free speech and who would be like, yeah, not only like is it fine to have Ben Shapiro there, but you should be engaging him and debating with him and like debunking his, um, he has quite a following. So you have to engage with that and try to debunk his points and argue from a place of reason rather than just silence and stifle and push on the public square. Um, So that's one. And I think he kind of proves that point with the way that he then turns around and says, well, what they really want is they wish us to disappear. They want half the country to go away because he weaponizes the fact that there's this like weird attempt, like clumsy attempt at censorship to feed something to his audience about how they hate all of you. They want to vanish all of you. They want all of you to disappear. And so, you know, even from the standpoint of like just winning the political argument, giving them this narrative about how they're victims and they're censored and they're being pushed down, they're being disappeared is politically potent and useful for them. Yeah. So this is a massive PR win for Ben Shapiro. And this is what happens. And this is why this is so frustrating. What happens in a situation like this, there's going to be some normie 13-year-old out there who stumbles across this story and it makes them say, Oh, the right must be like the the daring truth tellers, the edgy cool ones, the courageous ones. Yeah, and look at that. How dare they try to censor a, a differing opinion? And that's that's not right. And then that might start them in that pipeline down to the right. So, and there's a lot made about this idea of like a pipeline to the right. I honestly think this is the starting point to a pipeline to the right. Mm-hmm. When you have people who are on the left who are so sensitive and so afraid of offending somebody that they're like, we can't allow this guy to be here because of the material harm he's done. All Ben Shapiro does is yap his mouth. He says horrendous things oftentimes. But to your point, the real reaction from the left should be, and look, I'll go a step further. You're like, oh, they should debate and debunk him. Totally agree with that. But we're also, the left is also not afraid of conversation. Ben, I don't know if you're listening to this, but I will have you want to you want to talk to me as somebody who is on the left very clearly. Uh, set it up. Let's go. Me and you on Joe Rogan's show. He can moderate. And by the way, that's really more like two versus one nowadays because Joe Rogan just came out and said vote Republican. Yeah. OK, <laughs> so you want to you want to you want to do that? I'm more than happy. You and Joe Rogan uh, can have a conversation with me. I'm more than happy to answer any questions you have. Now, the reason why I say uh, I'm not saying Ben debate me 
is because Ben, very famously, what was the title of his book? He wrote a book that was like, How to Debate and Destroy Leftists. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic, right? Because his whole thing is like, I'm the honest uh, person who engages with the right and wins on logic and facts and reason. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, you just, your whole, the whole book he wrote was about like, here are the tactics that you use in order to win. Here's like the which tricks is, and strategies. Right, more about to- optics. Mm-hmm. And he also, he, you know, it's funny because in the same way that he got deplatformed here and people, uh, you know, the, sort of lumping in every right winger with with this with Ben Shapiro and acting like there's no room for you here. Ben does the same thing to the left. He always strawmans the left mm-hmm. and he always lumps them into like one category and yeah. is willing to like write them off in the same way that he says, well, you're writing off 50% of the country. Ben, you do that all the time. He has a fucking mug that says leftist tears on it. He's, he literally does it in this little spiel that he gives right. <laughs> about the left. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that is that honest engagement, Ben? A leftist tears mug? Is that you saying, you know what, I'm kind of moderate, and I think the people on the left have some points on this issue and this issue. No! That's not what that is. That's not what that is at all. Yeah. So, look, it was a massive PR win for Ben Shapiro. I think the people who run this conference are comically stupid. Nothing could have um, been better than him. Nothing could have been better this. for him than this. So, you know, the whole point of us talking about this, and I wanted to go that step further and say, there are plenty of people on the left who are willing to engage and engage in good faith and probably change the minds of some people in your own audience. You know, I'm the guy who had on Jordan Peterson in the midst of his fucking meltdown and still managed to have an open and honest and direct conversation where we got some quite interesting information about Mr. Peterson's positions, right? So, Ben, I'm willing to do it. Let's have the conversation. Um, and for goofballs on the left who think this is the right approach, you look Stop. so silly and Stop. so stupid, and you turn everybody off, and if you guys want to jerk yourself off in your little fucking subculture bubble that never gains power, have fun doing that. I'm not interested in that project. I'm not interested in sitting next to people who already agree with me and talking about, oh, aren't we so right about everything? Oh, yeah, we're so right about everything. Oh, my gosh, shouldn't we leave everybody out who doesn't agree with us? Oh, yeah, let's do that. No, the real movement on the left, the real move on the left should be, I'll talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime, any place, and you know what? I'm going to stand up for my values and my policies and my beliefs, and I'm going to convince people along the way. Have the confidence to believe that your ideas are correct, that they are better, that people will respond to them, and that you don't have to go to these lengths of, like, just overt censorship to try to win the day because ultimately it doesn't work. It usually backfires. Exactly right. Makes them look way cooler than they actually are. Exactly right. All right, guys. We love you. Thanks so much for listening to us. This was a fun show. I enjoyed this show. Yeah, I liked it too. It's the Crystal and Kyle show today, not Crystal, Kyle, and Friends. And it's always, it's nice to have a a hefty, solid back and forth with you. Yeah, well, we've been doing a lot of, and uh, you guys seem to appreciate the, like, car and backyard content. Yeah, that's We've been been doing together. (laughs) A little window into, yes, we really are those nerds who are like, even when we're not on camera, we're talking about politics. Yeah. Planning, like, we should do a segment on this. And you know what? (laughs) I'm sort of butthurt over all this too because like all the work that goes into a normal show like I did a excuse me I did a segment on the whole um, Moderna is suing Pfizer mm-hmm. thing and that's a very important story right because yeah. we 10 billion tax dollars went to Moderna for them to come up with the mRNA stuff mm-hmm. and now they're turning around and suing Pfizer and BioNTech because you guys are using our thing no you're all using the public what we, what we paid funded. for what we paid for so it's all yeah. so anyway that's a super important story did that on my show posted yeah. it, less than 20,000 views 
Then there's like me and you in the backyard farting, and it's like <laughs> three hundred thousand. It's like uh, what? What the fuck? Should I just stop doing a show? Should me and you just like sit in lawn chairs all day, sipping lemonade, but talking I about think, nothing? But I think part of that. I mean, I think part of it is just when people see us in a different environment, they're like, "Oh, what's going on?" You know what I mean? I also think part of it is we only do those videos when there's something that's like kind of hot that we want to jump on top of. Sometimes there are some we do that are not. That are not. We did the Republican uh, presidential power rankings True. video. True. You know? True. So. I don't know. People anyway. just like it. They just like it. All right. Can't argue with the people. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. Have a good one.